0: Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. SoonerCon 31 is scheduled for June 30th through July 2nd, 2023, in Norman, Oklahoma. It promises a weekend full of tabletop gaming, cosplay, and appreciation for literary sci-fi as well as TV and comics. Visit SoonerCon.com for more information. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is designed by fans for fans, with the aim of harnessing the power of fandom to raise money for charities. The Hellmouth Convention celebrates all fandoms, but particularly things like Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you may not find anywhere else. The next event is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming Richard C. Meehan to the show and this is an episode where I'm going to strongly encourage you to go ahead and check out the show notes on my website AaronBossig.com because not only do we have a lot of specific topics that are worth looking into But Richard actually is an author of a sci-fi novel, which was going to be part of this discussion. And, you know, we got sidetracked on so many other topics that it didn't make it in there. But I'm going to link to that novel in here, and I think that that would be worth talking about in and of itself. What Richard and I are going to talk about today is going to be a historical fiction novel. And in some ways, the world-building aspects of that cross over quite well into what we might have been talking about with the sci-fi novel. Let's get started right now. On tap today we have Richard C. Meehan Jr. How are you doing today? Doing great. How about yourself? Doing fantastic. I'm looking over your book here, Ford the Pachelet, and it is a Revolutionary War novel, uh, the American Revolutionary War, in case I have to be specific for anybody listening from outside the country. And I'm a history fan myself, so I'm digging this big time.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Now, I'm going to say that the spelling of the name Pacolet I is heard. with a CH, only because that's the way it was spelled on ancient maps. So uh, we're gonna pronounce that Packelet. Yeah. And, and I there is a town of Pacolet, so I don't want to <laughs> get them all upset.
0: <laughs> and I made a deliberate attempt to try and get that right and still flubbed it. So it is what it is.
1: <laughs> no problem. Well, uh, this book is about the American Revolution in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. Back in uh, 1780, 81, 82, uh, we were kind of taking a big hit from the British during that time period. And where I'm sitting right now, uh, the major battle, the turning point of the war, the Battle of Cowpens, occurred, and the Cowpens is about 11 miles to my north. But the characters in my book were real people that lived about 20 miles from the Cowpens on a river nearby called the Packlet River. Now, no one really knows where the name Packlet came from. It was not an Indian name as far as any historian has been able to find. The best that has been found is that there was a French settler at one time, and he might have pronounced his name Pacolet, that perhaps settled in the town of Pacolet area. So uh, this is upstate South Carolina. We're called the Piedmont. We're at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a beautiful, lush area. Uh, The property of Grendel Shoals, which is uh, on the Packlett River, is a long lost location at this point in history. But back about 40 years ago, my father, myself, and two of his best hunting buddies put together the Grendel Shoals Partnership, which is a hunting club. And they are on the north side of the Paklet River at the actual Ford. The Ford Road, uh, old uh, foundations of buildings uh, are still on the property. And the property used to be owned by a Lord Chesney from England. Uh, During the 17, uh, January of 1781, uh, Daniel Morgan of the Continental Army, with many of the volunteer uh, soldier militia from our area, uh, were encamped for about three weeks. and this small frontier community had to host more than five hundred men from one army for three weeks. And then about a thousand men passing through, on the way to the Battle of Cowpens from the British Legion. So you've got 300 people-ish with their families and children. Some of them were loyalists to the king. They were called Tories. And some of them were Whigs or patriots on the side of America being a free nation of its own. Uh, These people lived as neighbors. They fought against each other. They uh, fought father to son in some cases, where one or the other was a Whig or a Tory in the same family. Uh, The women were also fighting in their own ways, uh, sometimes as spies, sometimes as passing messages, sometimes as just trying to, prevent the children from getting hurt. Uh, there were many instances on the Grendel Schultz property itself and around it of the small community doing whatever they could to survive.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. And I, I really love getting into this because I'm I said I'm a fan of history myself. We don't get into the Revolutionary War quite as much as we have some of the like the Civil War and World War II, to a lesser extent, World War I, we've, we've really fleshed that out of the media a lot the last 15, 20 years. But the American Revolutionary War, I, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing there was a lot of world building done because it's long enough ago now that the modern mind has trouble remembering the way people lived at that time. And you do a great job of getting into the details of what life was like then to, to contrast how how the changes were affecting people.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Um, One of the things that I wanted to do is make a story that's not a straight history, but I wanted it to be historically accurate. So I actually was parsed by the former park ranger out at the Cowpens National Battleground, uh, John Robertson. Uh, checked the book over for me for accuracy. Those folks out at the park these days are extremely knowledgeable. Uh, They've been well-versed in all of the extreme details of the battle and the site. But Robertson spent a lot of time traipsing across South Carolina, checking out all of the battle sites. And for your audience uh, to know, the, the South Carolina had more battles Than all of the 13 other, 12 other colonies combined. So I'm plotting a map right now for my next book, and I've got over 300 uh, points on it where (laughs) skirmishes, battles, and murders occurred. (laughs) So, uh, you know, if when you look on your map, you'll see that South Carolina is not the largest of states, Uh, it's not the smallest either. But we took a, the brunt of the war in the Southern campaign of 1780 and
0: 81. And that's the kind of detail that I really think is beneficial to the story. And it's kind of a, a good jumping off point to the next thing I, I was pondering as I was reading through it here. we It's so tempting to, like you said, make a straight history book. But at the same time, when you want to engage the reader... And you want to tell a, just a good story and you, you're cognizant of the fact that you're working with the lives of actual people, actual historical figures, the details of which are uncertain. How do you decide what liberties to take and how you decide what facts are too important to throw away?
1: Well, thankfully, uh, governments keep records on everybody. <laughs> so... Uh, the British were no different than we are today. Uh, they had records on uh, where people got their land, uh, where they lived, how many kids were, you know, they they knew everything about you pretty much the way they do now. So you can actually go, uh, one of my favorite places to go is Ancestry.com. Uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of your folks have, done some you know, checking out of the family. Where did they come from? Who are they related to? And when you take a, a character that is recorded in history, like Daniel Morgan, for instance, you can easily go to Ancestry.com and find out who he's related to, find out some family stories about him. Uh, that was the case by accident. I learned that over 30 years ago before the web was really the web, found it in the library. There was a book about Grendel Shoals, there's only one to my knowledge. There was a pamphlet written by a Grendel Shoals resident, but the pamphlet has long since disappeared. So the fellow that wrote about that, uh, he had walked up and down the riverbanks meeting these frontiers folks that are living in their cabins and on their small farms. And he interviewed people that were uh, essentially the grandchildren of the folks that fought the Battle of Cowpens and were alive at the time. So he had some people who were witnesses. Uh, One woman in particular married a judge. uh, And so he was famous in the South Carolina Senate for a while. So her records uh, were recorded in his book, uh, and those tales, uh, just to give you a for instance, uh, evidently there was smallpox going on in her uh, neighborhood at the time, and uh, the Tories were raiding homes, taking everything they could take, uh, all the food, all the animals, the cows, the chickens, the pigs, the whole work, uh, clothing, They'd take the bedding, they'd strip them down so that people could not exist without having to get help. They were hoping that the people would get help from the British. It was a way to get them to to trade sides and become Tories. So they would strip them down. In many cases, they would burn their homes. Uh, The women and children here, they are parked in their barn or their corn crib Trying to keep warm in the dead of winter, and uh, their husbands are off fighting skirmishes. So. I'm
0: glad you brought up the fact that this war split people down the middle—that you brother against brother, father against son, and, and, and so on. Because people who don't follow history that much tend to get the idea that the only time that happened in our nation's past was the Civil War. Brother against brother is—it's—it's it's the 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 motto that you kind of attribute to it but we only say that we don't say that about the revolutionary war only because we won and we like to have this idea that the whole nation at once just decided we were done with britain and that was that and it was not nearly that clean
1: Uh, there was nothing clean about a civil war now we have a south carolina historian very famous Uh, his name is walter edgar He's been around for quite a number of years, uh, historian at the University of South Carolina. Uh, one of the favorite things, I've seen many of his videos and read several of his books. One of the favorite things that he likes to point out is, uh, perhaps you remember the scene in the movie, The Patriots, where uh, Mel Gibson had a young son, probably 14, 15 years old. The British came to their home and the uh, British officer did not like the surliness of the boy or the father and he shot the boy in front of his father. And uh, many times I saw in videos with Walter Edgar, he was asked, well, was that really something that would have happened? And he was very careful to say that they would not have wasted the bullet and the gunpowder. Instead, they would have sabered him. So uh, many atrocities occurred on both sides. Uh, After reading much documentation, I believe that, uh, I think that the Tories kind of began that deal, but hey, when it starts, You have to protect yourself. And so uh, a lot of people got hurt. And yes, the Civil War is a little younger for us. Uh, We got a lot more of that in our history classes in school. But I'd be willing to bet that the only thing that you can remember from the American Revolution is probably the midnight ride of Paul Revere and George Washington crossing the Delaware, and all of his men trying to freeze to death at Valley Forge, because that's what we were taught, and that was the only thing we were taught.
0: (laughs) And there's so many people, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I just, I want to look, I want to encourage people to look into just how fascinating this stretch of time is, because we talked about the Civil War, and that was long and short, about four years, and we've got the Revolutionary where people are gonna be like, well, 1782, wasn't everything over by then? Because they think 1776 is when everything was wrapped up and it's that's not even close to That was just when the ball got rolling. It took years and years of fighting to get to the point where we could pull the nation together. And there, a lot happened in the, the atrocities you mentioned, the battles, just the idea of trying to come up with a plan took many years and the country suffered children grew up entire you know they they spent their whole childhood in this time just watching this happen around them yes it did now
1: one of the interesting stories that i ran up on was about our seventh president uh andrew jackson it turns out that andrew jackson at 13 years old in 1780 and his brother at 12 were working as uh, messengers and scouts for Sumter's Whig militias. So uh, that literally is about 30 miles from my house uh, in an area called Upper Fishing Creek, South Carolina. The fishing Creek is off of the Catawba River, I believe. And there were several big churches, uh, meeting houses uh, in the area. Now, have you ever heard about the involvement of the Presbyterian ministers in the American Revolution?
0: I have to say I have not heard about this.
1: Well, for anybody that wants to pursue that a little bit, all they have to do is go to YouTube and type in the Black Robe Regiment. And they will get several very interesting videos that explain why the Presbyterian ministers were involved in the war and what they were preaching from their pulpits. But there was a fellow named uh, Reverend John Simpson here in South Carolina that actually served several of the meeting houses. He traveled around. He was an itinerant preacher. And... Uh, when the atrocities occurred at the Battle of Waxhaws, uh, Waxhaws is spelled W-A-X-H-A-W apostrophe S, Waxhaws, uh, the massacre of Buford's Patriot Militia by quote unquote, bloody band Tarleton, as the Whigs like to call the British Legion commander. Uh, they, it was a true massacre. Uh, I'll let you look up the details on that particular battle. It's very interesting. But fact is, Buford was defeated. It it was very bloody. Uh, It made the pastors in the area very upset. And essentially from the pulpits, they began uh, preaching that it was going to be God's will that the Americans were to turn back this enemy of the people. Uh, for what had been done. So uh, that, I believe, is probably the main instigation for the folks up here in the Piedmont to fight the British. The pastors were preaching it from the pulpit, saying that it was God's will. And they give all kinds of excellent reasons why they felt that was the case. But let me put it to you this way, whether you're religious or not, I'm Christian, and I believe that these pastors were trying to do the right thing for their people, their congregation. Uh, Whether you're a Christian or not, the fact remains that these preachers took up arms themselves and went out and stood up for this country. They took their congregations in whole with them. And those congregations fought the British off to a standstill here in South Carolina
0: at the Battle of Cowpens, And that turned the war around. I'm, I wasn't trying to ignore you. I was actually taking a minute to write all that down because I wanna put that video and those historical notes in the show notes on my website, aaronbosig.com. Somebody goes ahead and looks up the notes so they can get a handle on your book. They can go ahead and get those links there too as well. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because in the episode that immediately precedes this one, I got into a great conversation with Janine Michaelis, another author, and we talked about how diff- the, the difference between somebody who is writing just something completely out of, out of the, their own imagination and somebody who is taking the trappings of a, a certain faith and using that as the basis for their story. Because when they do the latter, they have to be mindful of the fact that some of their audience is going to assume that that faith is has meaning in their life and they'll interpret the story accordingly. And some of the audience is going to reject that idea and they're gonna interpret the story, story accordingly. So they have to have that, they, they have to keep both of those things in mind. And I'm wondering, like you said, it, when somebody hears about the, the Black Robe Regiment and the, they're going to say, well, can you presume that it was God's will? Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but the people of the time did, and that's the important thing.
1: And that, I believe, is the key. It was a different time. And there was no such thing as, quote unquote, the separation of church and state. And if they research on the Black Robe Regiment, they're going to find out that the British were using that as a derogatory term for the preachers. Uh, Now, the other thing about the uh, Christianity at the time, most of the settlers that were coming in were Christian. They were Scotch-Irish, German, but they were fleeing their countries because of political and religious persecution. That's why they came here to get away from that. And the British kind of tried to bring it all back. So that wasn't going to happen. Uh, the majority of the militia folks were Scotch Irish Presbyterian. And also up north, uh, you know, up there where Washington was fighting, that was the case as well. And uh, one of the videos that those folks will look up uh, on the Black Robe Regiment is about a Northern pastor. So
0: very interesting, and and seeing.
1: I guess I I should try to answer your question a little bit. I did not make uh, religion the focus of the book. However, uh, you can't get around that the family was Scotch Irish and that they had a meeting house and that the father was most likely one of the elders of the house, okay? Meaning that he served on Sundays. He might've even preached. So uh, the family Bible is extremely important at the time. Uh, Family Bible records the history of the family coming over from England, who the births and deaths were, going back into ancient history. So the Bible was kept on the safest place in the house, right below the gun on the mantelpiece.
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't meaning to imply that uh, you were making that the focus of the book, but I do find it being a very uh, when when something means something that much to somebody that it motivates them to make a story or even base their belief system around it. It's a force I want to look at because what you're saying, you're this is a force that moved entire countries to justify taking up arms against uh the, the government that was ruling them at the time there were people who were on the fence about it who thought okay well if the pastor's behind this so am i that it, it and likewise there are people who will make a story that just has a few trappings of their faith but isn't really meant to be uh, a, a guiding life lesson and i i think there's room in the world for both uh, both ways of looking at things
1: um I would suggest that remember I mentioned Dr. Walter Edgar. You get a get hold of this book called Partisans and Redcoats by Dr. Walter Edgar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brattonsville folks have a, a park around the battlefield itself up in York County. Uh, they have a wonderful book called The Day It Rained Militia by Michael Scoggins. Uh, and he details the entire upstate experience through the Battle of Brattonsville itself. Uh, wonderful reads for folks that want to know the true history. Now, again, I, uh, one of the things that I wanted to make sure of is that I presented true history not only in this first book for the packet, but I'm planning to do the series the same way. Uh, I want the the history of the best of my knowledge. I've got about 20 resources open here, not to mention who knows how many web sources. Uh, The first book alone has over 300 sources and many of those were eyewitness accounts. So uh, I wanted to present the story in a way that would be fun to read as in, it's nobody wants to read dates and times and, and who did what and this, that, and the other. You know, history is great for school, but when you just want to have a leisurely
0: read, you need Ford the Packlet. <laughs> and let's not forget that if we go back, not that far back in the in past one, you know, before people could really read on their own, before widespread literacy was a thing, when people would hear about their own history, they would hear about it in the form of oral tales, songs, or just, you know, t- stories that would bubble up from their, their own communities. They would hear it in the form of the entertainment they wanted. And it wasn't always 100% accurate. Sometimes it wasn't even very accurate at all. But it would communicate the important stuff. It would communicate the stuff that they were trying to teach their children or even each other. And so what we're dealing with now is not that different.
1: That's true. And one of my rules of thumb is to make sure that at least three of my sources are in agreement. And as many sources as I can find on the same subject material. Uh, Thankfully, uh, folks did something different back then. They didn't have TV. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet. So they wrote. They wrote lots of letters. They wrote memoirs, and they wrote books. So that material is still out there. You just have to dig for it. And uh, for instance, uh, the Spartanburg County Library has a room called the Kennedy Room. The Kennedy Room is devoted to materials specifically about South Carolina. And when I was at Wofford College, In 1982, I had to use that room for one of my uh, English courses, and that's when I located the book about Grendel Shoals. Ten years later, I became involved in the property of Grendel Shoals for the hunting club, and I thought about that original book, and I said, wow, I think I'm going to find out everything I can about it. Now, I've got a two foot high stack of material about Daniel Morgan, Lord Alexander Chesney, (laughs) all of the relatives and ancestors, and families and friends and nephews and stuff that are still alive living right there at the Ford. And uh, Packlet is a very small town.
0: That's that's really awesome. And I have to ask, as probably as, as to wrap this up, because my curiosity as somebody who loves to research is getting to me. When you go from one book that you just kind of passed over once in your life to a two foot stack of material, when you're compiling this, is it important to you or super relevant to you to get academic sources? Or are you just glad to find anything? At, at what stage do you start to, weed out what's credible versus not and how does that process go in your head?
1: Well, originally uh, I was simply wanting to find out any stories about Daniel Morgan and camping on the property that we now owned. And once I got some names to look up, I was able to find more detail. Spartanburg, where I live, is named after the first Spartan regiment of militia. Uh, The town of Spartan might have had 14 cabins uh, when it started back in 1780, 81. Uh, By 1785, it was incorporated, and our town now has around 300,000 people in the county, so Um, I went from there and talked to quite a number of very knowledgeable folks. We tend to overlook our county museums. Uh, Fairfield County Museum is a wonderful group of people and resources uh, on historical folks from their neighborhood. Uh, Spartanburg also. Uh, York County Museum. Cherokee County uh museum all these folks have knowledgeable people in charge that you can talk to and i highly recommend it but one of the things that i discovered along the way was the uh bobby moss collection of all known patriot soldiers in the american revolution and it's like 14 uh four stack high file cabinets of soldiers every one of them's record everything that this man was able to find about these soldiers and i was able to go and a couple of the characters in my book uh, sergeant james park and his major joseph mcjunkin their service record information is in those file cabinets it's incredible once you get started on this path you may not be able to quit
0: (laughs) And that's why I love research because it just, it becomes more and more rewarding the further in you go. I agree. Richard, thank you so much for doing this. I have really enjoyed this chat. I've really enjoyed the book. So I want to say you're welcome back anytime. Where can people follow your adventures on the internet? Well,
1: on this particular book, go to fordthepacklet.com. Just remember that it's spelled P A C H. O-L-E-T, the old spelling of Packlet River or the uh, They can also go to nogginuniverse.com. That is the publisher. Noggin is in your head. Noggin. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, if all else fails, I will have that information and more on my website, AaronBosley.com. Rick, thanks again. I would like to thank Richard for being my guest today and I would like to thank you for listening. I can't get into the self-published author concept enough. This is really important to me because it wasn't that long ago that if you were a self-published author, you were basically dooming yourself to obscurity. There was not really a path forward for somebody to make their own books, sell them, and get any recognition. The internet and to an extent smaller labels have changed that and Richard is an example of that kind of talent that's coming up to the surface I'm going to ask if you are that kind of talent, if you are trying to get a a book out there and either you can't get it published traditionally or you are deliberately choosing not to I want to hear about you and I want to hear about your successes and failures please reach out to me at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or follow me on Twitter at Aaron Bossig I really would like to hear what's going on with each individual author listening to this show. Not only can you self-publish your work, but you can also self-start your morning. You can self-start your creativity. All you need is a little something I like to call caffeine. And my personal favorite place to get it is Sci-Fi Coffee. You can go to their website, sci-fi-coffee.com. You can look up several flavors that are each themed around a specific sci-fi concept, and they blend no pun intended, very well with your lifestyle as a sci-fi fan. You could use the coupon code HUNGRY, as in Hungry Trilobite, for 10% off. Don't forget, you could subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.